a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Tannock. I'm a journalist. And Keith, today we're looking at the risk of war over Ukraine. Now, this year has seen tensions reignited by Russia with some pretty aggressive activity on the Ukrainian border. So, What exactly is Vladimir Putin playing at? Well, we don't know, and that's part of the problem. So I've noticed that the US Secretary of State is speculating on a coming conflict, and a few days ago we had the head of the Ukraine Defence Intelligence Agency, uh, General Kirillyo Budinov, saying that he expects Russia to attack his country in late January, early February. It's an interesting prediction because generally wars in Europe don't start in winter. It's just too cold to fight or too wet to fight. So it's interesting that they're suggesting that's the case. But we have 92,000 troops on the border with Ukraine. So there's a huge build-up. We can tell that thanks to the Google system, you know, we can look at what the Russians are getting up to. So we can see there is a troop build-up. Yeah, it's a huge number of troops. So the background to this is that you have to go all the way back to the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So in um, 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. Under the uh, World War II peace agreements, the Russians were allowed to have troops stationed in East Germany in the same way the British, the French, the Americans still have troops stationed in what was West Germany. And the agreement was that the Russians will pull out of East Germany on the understanding that NATO would not try to move further east than it's already So that's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. That's the main military agreement for the United States covering Europe. So the agreement was that NATO would not move further east and get closer to the Russian border. That uh, was honoured by George Bush Sr., but it was changed uh, under President Clinton. The joke I make about President Clinton, he was a great leader of men and a great follower of women. And I think he's only going to be remembered in history for uh, his problems with Monica Lewinsky. But he also broke the agreement between Mikhail Gorbachev and President Bush over not moving further east. So he then started saying to the old East European territories of the former Soviet Union, look, you'll be welcome to join us in the Western world. And so that NATO border has gradually been moving further and further east. Now, Ukraine is not yet a member of NATO. And NATO rather foolishly has guaranteed its security. NATO didn't have to do that. But NATO has said, if there is a Russian attack on Ukraine, then we will come to the assistance of Ukraine. And if you look at where Ukraine is on the map, it's so far to the east, you've really got to wonder what on earth NATO is getting up to unless it really wants to keep poking the bear. That's the only explanation I can come up with. They're really antagonising it. And what is interesting in this new report uh, that we've got from the um, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, that they were referring to Ukraine as Putin's unfinished business. So Putin is is on a bit of a roll. He's doing extremely well. This year has been a very good year for him, although, of course, clearly COVID is a, a disaster in Russia as it is elsewhere. But 
Russia is on a bit of a roll. And then when Russia looks at the United States, Biden is unpopular at home. And of course, the United States has moved from focusing on chasing a handful of Islamic terrorists around the world to focusing on China. And Putin is saying, well, we Russians are still around here. And Putin has said that the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 was the biggest tragedy of the 20th century. Some of us would say it was one of the biggest achievements of the 20th century, <laughs> but he thought it was a tragedy. So what he's seeking to do is to rebuild the empire that Moscow used to have. So to that point, this is about power and recognition on a world stage then. I mean, he did get a meeting with US President Joe Biden uh, mid-year. What came of that or was that just about power and, and, and recognition? Yeah, I think yeah, I think the purpose of the meeting was just simply for Biden to get to know Putin and vice versa, although Biden and Putin would have known each other given Biden's experience as vice president for eight years. And there is a school of thought which says that jaw, jaw, is better than war, war. <laughs> so <laughs> like it's it. much better to have these leaders talking to each other rather than getting involved in conflict. So Putin has had a good year and what he, he has done by moving all these troops up to the border, the Russians already control the eastern part of Ukraine. So Ukraine is a huge country. It's one of the biggest countries, geographically speaking, in Europe. And it's got a, a, a comparatively large population as well, well, about 45 million, and good arable land. It used to be called the breadbasket of Eastern Europe. So it, it could be potentially a wealthy country. And Putin has got back control over Crimea because his worry was that as NATO was moving east, he would lose the uh, Russian naval facilities into the Mediterranean, which are based in Crimea. So he took back Crimea, and he's also got uh, Russian troops or Russian volunteers working with the pro-Russian end of Ukraine. That's eastern Ukraine. And so uh, what we have basically is a return to World War I trench warfare. So we have a border which runs through eastern Ukraine, which is the eastern Ukraine is predominantly Russian. The western Ukraine is predominantly, well, more European than Russian. And there's trench warfare going on. So we've had thousands of people killed in the last seven years. Now, um, I've seen one figure at 3,000. I've seen another figure at 14,000. But it, it means that for people who are living on that border, you spend a lot of your time, if you're a soldier, actually scurrying around in trenches. It's a rerun of World War I in trench warfare. And they are firing at each other. So they're just skirmishing all the time for seven years. It must be nerve-wracking for the soldiers deployed there. Plus, of course, you've got civilians in the area. And, of course, you've got the risk, as Australians found out, that you could end up with some sophisticated Russian weaponry being used by unsophisticated people who then shoot down Malaysian airliners. So much instability in that area. Absolutely. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. I'm Sasha Tannock. And Keith, today we're talking about the risk of war over Ukraine. Now, we've been here before. So is there reason for concern this time around that there is a heightened or imminent threat? Or is Russia just posturing? Is there good reason for Washington to worry? Well, I guess my question is, why did the Russians feel they need to posture? Why do they need to move all those troops into the border in East Ukraine? Nobody seems to to know quite what Putin is up to. 
Putin has said that Russia will draw the red lines, you know, so if NATO moves over that so-called red line, Russia reserves the right to retaliate. But the Russians will decide where the red line is to be drawn. So it's very ambiguous indeed. I think that this article refers to Putin's unfinished business. And the unfinished business, when you look back over his long career, which now runs on for 20 years as the leader of uh, Russia, post-Soviet Russia, uh, his biggest achievement could be that he is starting to expand once again the uh, territory that Moscow controls. He is the first leader in Moscow to expand Russian territory since Stalin. So we're back into the 30s and 40s. So in Putin's case, he he grabbed back Crimea, which had been transferred to Ukraine in a drunken rage or drunken fit by a, a former Soviet leader who was very fond of the vodka. So he took that back. Now, that's the first acquisition of territory by Moscow, well, since the era of Stalin. Instead, the Russians or Moscow have lost territory. So all of those is Eastern European territories became independent after 1991, and also the strip of what were called the stands, in other words, the Kazakhstans, etc., running along the southern border of the old Soviet Union, they're all independent as well. It's interesting, Russia is still the world's largest country, geographically speaking, but they've lost so much of their territory. They've lost the Eastern European colonies or territories, and they've lost their Southern Asian territories, if you like. And so Putin is trying to reverse that damage. And that's why the Carnegie Endowment referred to this as being unfinished business. What Putin wants to do is to grab back some of the territory that became independent after 1991. He's already taken back Crimea, and obviously he's got his eye on eastern Ukraine. So it's very much how he wants to be remembered by the Russian history books. So it's about his legacy. About his legacy, absolutely. Now, Keith, let's talk about the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which goes from Russia to Germany. Why is that significant and the fact that the Biden administration has decided to waive sanctions on that pipeline as announced in May? So there is already one pipeline that, uh, which runs, as you say, from Russia into Europe, into, into Germany, and there's another one that runs through Ukraine, ironically. And the Russians and the Germans and others have now built a parallel pipeline pretty well. Americans were previously saying, don't turn on that second pipeline because you'll be giving money to the Russians. The Europeans are saying, we need energy. We can't afford to turn them down. We need to have that energy. Now, if they do, if the Russians say, all right, we're going to use Nord Stream 2, we will keep you guys going, the immediate issue is it means that less gas will flow from Russia into Europe through Ukraine. And, of course, Ukraine makes money by metering the flow of gas coming through its territory. So that's one blow to Ukraine. It'll damage the government's budget. The second one, in the long term, and this, I think, is why the Americans are so concerned, that locking yourself into relying on Russia as a supply of gas is high risk because the Russians could simply cut off that gas, particularly during the winter when temperatures go down in Europe. Even with climate change, it still gets cold <laughs> in Europe. Uh, and so the Europeans are exposing themselves to this risk. They're in such a hurry to get out of coal that they're actually now putting themselves at risk of the Russians denying them gas. So that, that's, the, that's the significance of Nord Stream 2. Now, 
Biden has given in and said, all right, well, we will no longer try to block that Nord Stream 2 project. We will allow that to go ahead. But the, the problem is that by doing so, it's going to hurt Ukraine because there'll be less gas going through Ukraine on which they can charge a fee. And secondly, it locks the Europeans still more into a dependency relationship with Russia. And the Russians can then use gas as a weapon over the Europeans. And you don't want Russia having something over you. No, not at all. Not with the risk of war looming, no. So is it futile to think that the US and Europe may have the ability to defuse this situation via some kind of negotiation? I mean, can ongoing conversations between Moscow and Washington dial back the tension? Or if it's about his legacy, is he intent, do you think, on that end? That's a good question because, we, we, as I say, we don't know what he's really trying to do. But also the problem is that Europe actually has, and the United States, they actually have very limited options here. Remember that Ukraine is not a member of NATO. If one country invades another, the issue has to go to the UN Security Council. The problem with that, of course, will be that Russia will use its veto to block any action by the UN Security Council. But the UN is is the more appropriate forum rather than NATO saying, we will guarantee Ukraine's independence. Because as I say, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And Ukraine is just so far east, and it's right, well, literally, on the Russian border there. So you could, you know, we're all expecting World War Three to break out between the United States and China. But it may well be that we could still have a conflict in Europe, which seems bizarre for us to say that because, you know, we like to talk about Europe being at peace since 1945, except for the conflict in the Balkans in the 1990s, the Europeans like to boast about how they've got out of the habit of going to war like the English and the, and the, or British and the, and the Germans. And yet here we are, we're perhaps talking about conflicts back in Europe. So as though things haven't really changed very much. Now, in political science terms, I'm called a realist. In other words, I'm somebody who takes a very pessimistic view about the future of the world. And this sort of feeds into it because for me, there's just further evidence that uh, the world is not getting dramatically better Uh, and that it's a pretty grim situation. Well, as the Pentagon has said, it is watching closely for any further escalation and and says that would have been of great concern to the United States. Russia keeps insisting it's not threatening anyone, but it'll be really interesting to see how this uh, military aggression on the border plays out over the next few months. Absolutely, and whether or not we actually get another war. Yep. That was this week's episode of Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Make sure you tune in next week when we'll break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Listener.